Inside 50, Petrarca at the back. Can he keep it in? Picks it up. And the squaring ball for Fritsch is superb. Hello and welcome to Deadwood, the Melbourne Demons podcast. Neats, you've been buzzing all day. How good was that win? <laughs> best win since 2018? Oh, 100%. It's the best win since the uh, semi-final against Hawthorne in 2018 by a mile. <laughs> um, and look, there were a few moments which just made me really happy. I think when Track just completely outran Scully, I was mm. extraordinarily happy. Track outmarking Sicily, oh, I was extraordinarily happy. Gorn, all of Gorn's intercept marking, I mean – he basically might as well have been wearing a Hawthorne jumper. How many times did they just kick it directly to him? He took six intercept marks, and he's played some great games against Hawthorne before, so it's not a surprise, but he was phenomenal. And I would I would make the case that he's actually playing Lever's role better than Lever. I actually made that point to you earlier, but okay. yes, well, that's, I wrote the that is... I ex- to say it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's exactly what I thought. Watching it, I kind of thought a little bit like, so what is Lever's role? Because this is what I envisioned Lever's role being, but no, Gorn was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So this episode, we're very excited to have an interview with the Fox footies, uh, Tom Morris, who's a diehard D's fan, newsbreaker on on the couch, just knows his D's. So we talk about a lot of great stuff, including what it's like supporting the D's in the 2000s, sports journalism and his uh, little run-in, shall we say, with Jesse Hogan last year when he got called a leech or something. Uh, (laughs) And also Simon Goodwin, trade targets, lots of great stuff. Um, but a couple of quick things before we get to that. Um, Neats, what did you think of Clayton Oliver's game? Because I was very, very impressed. Yeah. I mean, look, I thought he played well. He, I didn't think he, you know, Viney and, and Track and Gorn were sort of the clear stars, but he was sort of after that. But he he looked like he was playing a much more composed game, I would say. Totally. And We've been diving into the stats a little bit, as is, as we do on Deluded, and he's actually uh, dramatically changed his game in the last couple of weeks, interestingly, after he got absolutely baked a couple of weeks ago in the Richmond game. So in the three games um, up to the Richmond game, his kick-to-handball ratio was less than one. So he was handballing more than he was kicking quite considerably, and his metres gained were less than 300. Uh, in the last two, week, two weeks, he's, he's had significantly more kicks than handballs. And this week, he actually had the most kicks of the team, which is not what you would have picked for Clayton Oliver. Uh, and he actually gained 500 metres. So There you go. Well, I think, I think he's definitely lifted, um, particularly since he got like roasted in, the, in an entire news cycle yeah. a few weeks ago. What do we think of Luke Jackson's game? It's nice to see him kick his first goal. I thought he played pretty well. And, you know, I have to be honest, I posted on the Facebook page, um, this is why you don't post on the day before games, that maybe they should have picked Brown instead of Jackson. But, you know, props to the coaches. I think he looked more ready than I thought he was, having seen him in the preseason and um, in his first game. I mean, look, he, he had like he led the team for clangers and he made some mistakes, but he just moves really well, doesn't he? Yeah, he's very smooth moving. And I think, um, look, you can you can see why they picked him. He does have these very raw athletic gifts. And I think it's going to be a while until we actually see any of them come to fruition, I will say. Like, I think, you know, it's probably going to be another four years or so. But um, but who knows? I mean, look, he, he did look a lot better today. And I think, because I was a little bit confused about his selection. But I think that they kind of have to persevere with Jackson and Weed um, in the forward line. Because they just look, they just look, I don't know, like let them establish some type of partnership and they look kind of agile and quite mobile and that is really where the game is is heading. 
What do you think that means for Tom McDonald? I'm just not sure where he fits. And we talk about this a little bit later with Tom, but uh, I, I just, my problem with Tom McDonald is that, you know, he really wasn't in great form um, and he hasn't been in great form for a while now. Weed actually has looked pretty good as the main man and with maybe someone as like kind of a support casting role like Luke Jackson. But I'm just not sure. And then that leaves Tom McDonald to potentially play a bit more up the ground, mm. uh, which I'm fine with, but I don't know whose spot he takes if he does that. Yeah, it's a tough call. And, I mean, how good has Weed been? I mean, he had six marks, nine score involvements, which is fantastic. And he's played a pretty unselfish role, I thought. You know, he'd take these good marks, he'd hand it off. Um, you know, he's doing more than enough. It's kind of baffling, once again, that he hasn't been playing. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the moment that I, I really – it just showed sort of his mental resilience, I think, when he got absolutely poleaxed in the face by – um by Ben Stratton, but he just didn't, you know, take a backward step. And I yeah. just think he showed great courage. He looks courage. like Rambo or something. He's yeah, just, he's ready to go. he right. does. No, but I like that. His confidence is obviously really lifting. And I think, you know, I would like the team to not be disrupted in terms of changes too much because I, I really do think that this team in particular seems to be a very confidence, um, a team that really plays on confidence. And I think that in order to develop that as a team, not just individually, they all need to play together and know their roles and have some type of symbiotic relationship. Mm, absolutely. Um, so we're going to head straight into the interview with Tom Morris because we do discuss the game in a lot more detail. Uh, for regular Deluded fans, this is quite a long episode, but um, I think you'll enjoy it. There's a lot of great D's nostalgia, lots of gossip and scuttlebutt about the team trading, um, you know, future targets. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, thank you again for joining Deluded. Please subscribe uh, to the podcast, join our Facebook uh, group. And uh, leave us a review. And until next week, go Dees. Go Dees. Tom Morris, welcome to the Dear Leader Podcast. What a pleasure to be on the podcast. Episode <laughs> 90 or something like that. So I don't know, like sometimes I say that you just, uh, you just need to leave the best till late. Um, I'm not the best, but I'm happy to be on now. And guys <laughs> from um, Mexico. And I'm very jealous. I've been to Mexico before and I had a great time a few years ago. I don't think I'll be going back there soon. Anyway, let's talk about the D's and footy. <laughs> You're certainly the biggest um, media celebrity we've had on the Dillard podcast. No, that's actually. not true. We had Sarah Ollie on. That's true. Don't, that's true. don't insult not, Sarah Ollie. Well, I'd, I'd like to start off by... Um, by critiquing that that phrase, I'm I'm not a celebrity. I, I work in the media, but I'm absolutely not a celebrity. And yeah, you're right. Sarah Ollie is a big name. She's a gun, and uh, I'm sure she did the podcast justice as well. So it's great to be here. Yeah. So Tom, tell us. From what we understand, you're a D's supporter growing up. Is that right? That's right. Yep. I was about to say unfortunately, but then I thought no, that's actually not the case because growing up, I saw us playing a prelim in '98 against North Melbourne. Um, a pretty good North Melbourne team uh, that ended up losing the grand final the next week. And then 2000, we made the grand final against arguably the best team of the modern era, Essendon, although that was an awesome year. Like we played some seriously good footy that year, as you guys would know. 02, we should have beaten Adelaide in the semi-final. 04, we made the finals. 06, we beat St. Kilda at the MCG, then lost to Freo over there. So like every second year, we were a good team growing up. So, and it became a pattern. So even when we were bad, I remember thinking to myself as a 10 or 12 year old, it's okay, we'll be good next year. And that's the way it played out from about 1997 to about 2007. And then there was a really dark period, right <laughs> as I should have been hitting my peak as a teenager from when I was about, when I was 16 to when I was 27, we didn't play any finals. And all my Hawthorne mates and um, 
and, and you know, Sydney Swans mates like Sarah Ollie, they're going to watch finals and grand finals and celebrating premierships in their early 20s. And I'm just sitting at home having not seen Melbourne play in a final in ages. So I'm proud of my support for Melbourne. Um, I will never change from Melbourne, but it's been a rough... <laughs> It's sort of been a rough 10 or 15 years, as you guys would appreciate as well as I do. Well, complete devastation. I'll tell you what, though. You know, our very first day, Kieran and I, was at the Melbourne St Kilda uh, elimination final. In 2006. In 2006. Yeah, that was our first day. Yeah. I kid you not. Really? Yeah. That is amazing. So that's that, that's the night that um, uh, that was Fraser Gehrig's last game. That Nathan Carroll knocked Grant. out, took out Fraser Gehrig. Yep. That's right. And um, – and Grant Thomas got sacked for St Kilda after that. I was sitting right down the front of the members. And I was sure, I don't know about you guys, I was sure we were going to beat Frio the next week. Like we yeah. were, so was I. Brad Miller. Amazing. Brad Miller I know, incredible. Life, but we still lost. So that was disappointing. I just feel like, I know we made a grand final, but I feel like we had a really good squad for that period of time from 98 to 06. Yeah. We just couldn't quite put it together at the right time of the year. They're hard to win grand finals, but there's been a lot worse teams that won a premiership than the Melbourne 2000 team that, uh, that lost to Essendon. It's funny how complacent we were back in the day because I remember getting so frustrated that we'd always be sixth. Like, what's the point of playing <laughs> yeah. if you're always going to be sixth? And then we had some of the most horrible years after well, that. Well, I mean, they sacked Neil Danaher literally because we kept finishing sixth. And then for yeah. a while, you were like, my God, like, why did we ever think that sixth was like, you know, beneath us? In what world was that too low a position to finish? Right. I know. And I remember. Um... 2002, I feel like, was the one that really got away. I think we were, you, you guys might know, I think we were first with about mm. two months to go, about round 15. We're actually top of the ladder and we were humming. Like all our good players were good, like dominating. We were just on fire. And for whatever reason, we lost a few games late and then we ended up losing to the Crows, who had a ridiculous second half at the MCG. And it just felt like it was a season that we should have at least made a prelim and then who knows what can happen from there. It's amazing. We're talking about all these like old war stories and like yeah. what we've asked, but, <laughs> but like watching the demons at their best is still a great yeah. feeling. And 2018 was awesome when we made the prelim against West Coast. Those two weeks at the MCG, um, back-to-back weeks against the Cats and then the Hawks were just awesome. The MCC was pumping. So uh, the, the fact that that is fresh in the memory still, um, that, that spurs me on and, and gives me hope that, that the days can be back pretty soon. But uh, it's nothing more than hope at this stage. I'm not ruling them out, but I'm not necessarily unbelievably confident either. And that makes sense. It was actually funny in 2018. I will never forget it. We watched the Geelong final at a hotel room in New York. And I actually thought you were going to cry. Like you, the emotion was, it was really, it was quite a beautiful moment. You know, it was actually oh, quite was. a, like, it really was. But watching on TV. It's depressing. Oh, yeah. It's nothing. Look. Yeah, no, but it was, it was quite cathartic. It's like this, yeah. this, it must have felt sort of on a lower level what it was like when the dogs broke their premiership drought or when um, or when Richmond broke their premiership drought. Like this is not a premiership drought. This is a finals drought. But Geelong <laughs> have been a dominant team for a decade and they'd whipped us. I don't know if you guys remember a game. I'll never forget. It was, uh, it was sort of midwinter, August 2008 it was. And Geelong, they were up 100 to 10 against us at the MCG. How was that? Wet Friday night. How was that, that game? Yeah. Oh, never forget in, that just game. In, just, just embarrassing. So being able to turn the tables on them and beat them in an elimination final and send them packing and make it was just hugely satisfying. And although I didn't cry, the emotions inside of me were awesome. That was a good It was night. like, it was honestly like Kill Bill. You know, it was like <laughs> Melbourne was taking revenge on all of the teams that had like destroyed yeah. them. But only the old and slow enemies. Yeah, like yeah. Geelong and yeah. Hawthorne. Yeah. You know, of all a, a team that just completely terrorized us, Hawthorne, you know. Yep, yep, no, I agree with that. And it's a shame we just couldn't get the job done against West Coast, but we looked 
so far off the pace in that prelim against West Coast. And in the end, West Coast won the grand. If West Coast had lost to Collingwood easily, I would have been like, oh, you know, we were just terrible. But we, we lost to a premiership team who was seven days away from, from winning a flag out on their home turf. So it, it, although we played poorly, it wasn't a disgrace to lose to them over there. It was always, always going to be a hard task to, to win that game. Yeah. What was a disgrace was the following year, but we can get into that in a second. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> Um, but Tom, before we go into some deep D's analysis, um, a few few journalism questions for you. So, so one thing for that, aspiring journalists such as Kieran so, Iyer, such as me, really, I just yeah. my future. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are going fine. I think uh, I think a law degree will get you a bit further than a journalism degree. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. But <laughs> so one thing I've always been intrigued by is how do you become a newsbreaker? Because there seems to be like a a role in you know, Melbourne AFL journalism, which is the, the newsbreaker. And you seem to have, you know, wormed into that role. How did that happen? Yeah, well, it wasn't planned. Um, and and we live in such a bubble. There's not many of us, really. You can probably name, uh, there's probably seven or eight of us that are actually trying to break, you know, aggressively trying to break news. The, the, no doubt there would have been more 10 or 15 years ago, but as the media has contracted, so is the, um, so is the role of the newsbreaker journalist. When I was, I used to work at St Kilda Footy Club. I've got to put my hand up. That was my first job at the Saints. And I didn't go for the Saints when I was there, but I was still an employee of the St Kilda Footy Club. And I remember thinking to myself, I wouldn't mind getting into the Herald Sun or to the Age or, or to Fox Sports. Um, but I'm not sure I really want to be you know, a hard-nosed news journalist. Because I looked at the way that people were uh, treated Caroline Wilson or, you know, would, would abuse Robbo and things like that. I thought, do I really want that? You know, and, and Rob at the time was news breaking, Caro still is. Um, and then I got to I got a job at Fox and I sort of realised within, I don't know, within probably a 12-month realisation that if I'm gonna have any sort of longevity, you sort of need to break news. Or you need to be or you need to do something else, be a producer or or be a fantastic presenter, you know, like a um, like like Kath Lockman or Nerly Meadows or someone like that, that that is a more of a presenter. Um, which isn't as much my goal, though I do a little bit of hosting, but I sort of realized that I had to break news and, and I was lucky that I've got some reasonable networks from growing up playing sport, playing cricket and footy and sort of in the Melbourne bubble and I know a few people. So once you sort of, it's almost like an addiction. Once you break a couple of stories, then you sort of think, geez, that feels good because you look at the numbers on the website and people click on stuff because to me, all journalism is about is about telling or teaching people things they don't already know. And if that's, general, if that's news breaking, that's awesome. If it's an analysis, that's good as well, but that's more the more experienced journos. So once I broke a couple, I'll never forget the first story I broke. There was a, um, it was about two weeks into the job and Fremantle had held a, uh, a like a private, or, you know, probably the clickbait headline is like a top secret um, uh, training session for players who were playing VFL that they were thinking about drafting. They did it at MSAC. Um, you know, there's lots of fitness testing and I sort of got wind of this and I broke the story and I thought, oh, geez, that feels good. And then I wanted to break another one, another one. And in the end, I just thought, like, this is my go. Like, I, I can call people on the phone. Um, I, I've got quite thick skin, so if someone tells me to piss off, I don't really care too much. Um, I feel like I've got a, a reasonable sense of um, of morality. Like, if someone tells me something that they don't want to get out, I'm not going to burn them. So by not burning them at one point, um, they're more likely to help me out two or three months down the track. And some of the biggest stories I've got are because uh, I've treated someone with respect two, three, four, five, six months earlier, which has actually paid off. And the more you know that, the more you treat them with respect because you think it's might, it might happen in the future. Also, mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do to treat people with respect. I've got to put that out there. But in a long-winded <laughs> sort of way, 
um, uh, I fell into it. And then once I got into it, I realized that's, that's, that's the game. You know, like, unless you are breaking news, in my view, and I'm talking about written journalism here, unless you are breaking news, um, you, you are brutally quite expendable um, and replaceable. And that's just the industry we're in. No longer is there room for um, really... There is room, but no longer is there, sp- is there as much space for really long-winded, beautifully written pieces that, that 2,000 people read. You know, you, you'd much rather have a 250-word piece that hits the nail on the head about a trade story that 50,000 people read. I mean, it's an advertising game. That, that's the landscape. So that's sort of what I'm doing now. Um, I've grown as I've gone on. I've learned a lot. Like, I've made mistakes. I made one last week. Um, but all you can do is just do the best job you can. And my bosses say, you know, we don't care if we, hear, we don't hear from you for two weeks. Then you come with an absolute bomb. And I've got a thing on my desk, um, which is, it's, it's actually ridiculous. I've got a, uh, five different whales that I've got from Google Images. So I've got like the biggest whale down to like a seahorse. And, and my boss is like, you just need to get the biggest whale you can as often as you can, like a bigger story, a big whale. But like, there's also times where you have a day where you get like three seahorses, you get like three smaller stories that do really well as well. So um, that's sort of my journey to news breaking. It's not easy um, and it can be stressful. Um, I enjoy the summer when I'm not doing it as much, although I do, I do a bit in cricket. But it's to me, it's the the thing that gets me going. Like it's, it sort of invigorates me every Monday when I wake up. Like, okay, how can I find a story today which no one else knows, or which other journalists know, but they haven't been able to get before me. So it is quite competitive as well. And what's the most extreme length you've gone to 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 get a story? <laughs> that's a that's a good question, and it's an easy answer. It was my with my girlfriend Bridget, whose house I'm at now. And I got wind that um, it was last year. Dugowie did his hamstring at Collingwood, and it's not ex- not ridiculously extreme. Not it's not, I'm not the first person to do this, but it was a Sunday. Like I think we were hungover, um, and I absolutely were hungover. And the last thing I felt like doing was going anywhere. But I got wind that Dugowie was going to Germany to get uh, treatment on his hamstring, as as a few players do. Um, it must have been August or something. It was pre-finals, and I thought, stuff it. I'm going to the airport. I'm going to Tullamarine Airport. And I told Bridget and she's like, I'm coming with you. I'm like, what? She's like, I'm coming with you. So I'm thinking to myself, this is like a, an adventure now. You know, I'm going on a stakeout. So I looked up because I know Collingwood's sponsored by Emirates. So I looked up Emirates flights to um, to Munich, I think it was, but obviously it goes via somewhere else. I actually can't remember where it goes via. But anyway, I found out it was like a, it was a 9.35 flight. This is like 7 o'clock. I'm like, I've got to get there. Um, so we got in the car. Then on the way in the car, Bridget... She doesn't know much about football. And she said, what, what does Dugowie look like? I'm like, oh my God. So, we, so I had to like get Google images out, like Jordan Dugowie, this is him. And um, so she waited at one entrance. I waited at another. I told her to like film on like landscape phone because <laughs> we wanted to get footage. Like what, what's become apparent to me, especially in the last two years, if you've got a good story, let's like flood the media. Let's not just write it. Let's like make sure we can go on a podcast, do a radio, like get vision, like put it on TV and you can like own the story from start to finish. So I think this is great. Like we're going to get vision. Either me or Bridget's going to get vision to go walking in. Um, if it's me, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, say, hey, going Jordan, like all this sort of stuff. Anyway, we missed him. I don't know how we missed him. He got on the flight, but he must've gone through a back entrance, but we missed him. I still got the story. I still wrote it on my phone when I, when I, when I was in the car when Bridget was driving. Um, but I couldn't believe we were there to like, we thought the flight might be delayed. We're there till like 10.30 on a Sunday night. So uh, that's probably the, the the most I've done to actually go and find a story. Although I missed the vision aspect of it, I still got the story that the guy was going to Germany. <laughs> and you can imagine how that blows up. People are sitting on their couches on a Sunday night. Um, you know, they're having dinner or they're, they're not really worried about what's going on. And then all of a sudden something pops up on their phone. The guy flies to Germany to treat troublesome hands. And they think, what the hell? So you can imagine how many clicks that sort of thing gets. And 
Yeah. Um, and that's a good, that, that was a good story to get, but I just wish we'd seen him. <laughs> that would have made it even better. <laughs> so, Tom, you mentioned that you had a mistake last week. Uh, I assume yep. you're referring to the Stephen Cornelio saga. So walk us through what happened. And specifically, I want to know, how certain are you before you publish stories? Well, the best story, and Caroline Wilson always says this, and I'm a big Caro fan. She says the best stories are the ones that make you feel sick in the stomach. So probably the biggest ones I've done, like um, Bomber Thompson's house being raided because on, on suspicion of drug charges. Um, that made me feel sick in the stomach. I knew it was true, but it still made me feel sick. Um, the Adelaide training camp initially in like March 2018 or April 2018 made me feel sick in the stomach because, like, geez, you know, you can just you see it go up and you see the social media guy put it up and you're like, this is about to blow up. And in five minutes, you're getting texts from mates and it's just going nuts. But the Canelio, you have to be, there has to be an element of, um, you have to be certain. So what happened with the Canelio story was um, I got wind of the fact that he was um, in danger of being dropped last week. He'd been playing some ordinary footy. The Giants had been losing. Um, and someone on the inside told me specifically that um, Canelio is a real chance to be dropped this week. We're talking about it. I went, really? He went, yep, that's what's happening. I went, geez, okay. So I did the story. Um, and then the next day, uh, I just spoke to a few more people. And what I found out was that Canelio had actually um, been in a meeting on the, on the Monday uh, with lots of, like, a, a big group of coaches and things like that at the club. And he was told, mate, your form's not good enough. Like, we need you to lift. Just because you're captain, you can't expect you're going to get a game every week, blah, blah, blah. And that was interpreted by someone in the room as you're in danger of being dropped this week. When, in fact, what the discussion was is you just got to play better footy. You can't just take it for granted. And, you know, down the track, we need, we need to lift. So you can see how that was misinterpreted by 10% to that person. And then I probably dialed it up a further 10%, which I shouldn't have done. And in the end, I should know better than that because... If, if I say Canelio could be dropped and then he doesn't get dropped, people just think I'm saying Canelio will be dropped. So mm. I'm, I'm, mm. I look like an idiot. So it was, a, it was a big mistake to make. As, my, as one of my friends said, is like, you know, you were trying to go north, um, but you went northwest. So you, you, just, you just missed it. It was skewed. Um, and, that, that, and in the end, I thought, like I spoke to Stephen myself. I know Stephen. Um, I spoke to the Giants. And you don't always believe what the club tells you, but on this occasion, I had some pretty trusted people telling me some stuff. I went back to the person who told me in the first place. He goes, look, that, I, I just completely misread. Or he's like, I just got my wires crossed. Um, I actually thought he was a real chance to be dropped this week. So you, you can see how you got it wrong. You've got to be really careful. And then sort of, I, I apologize on Twitter, which I'm not about like, really, I don't really like releasing statements for the sake of it on Twitter. Like it's not about me, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to own it. Um, I've never done this before, but it's better to own it. I wouldn't want to do it again. Everyone's probably got one mulligan in them. Um, and it was pretty embarrassing. But in the end, I didn't lose any sleep over it. You know, it's a footy issue. It's, it's not life or death. So you've got to put it in perspective sometimes. And um, I've just got to be careful um, about those sort of stories and sort of look forward and see how it's going to be read. As I said, if you write a story saying Canelio could be dropped, people will read that as Tom is saying Canelio will be dropped, even though I'm not saying that. So people don't have the nuance that I have in my own head. So you've actually got to be a bit more careful than what I was last week. And so how do, you, how do you deal with clubs that are not forthcoming with you with information and you're trying like to find club. out a story? Yeah, like because, the, you know, the Australian media is not like, it's not like the, the Australian club's relationship with the media is not like the US club's relationship with the media at all, right? And players aren't particularly tra like transparent and they're sort of programmed to say very generic kind of typical things. So how do you end up getting a story in those circumstances? Well, you've got to trust the people you speak to. Um, 
I mean, you get lied to all the time. That just happens all the time. But the best thing is if you can prove that they lied to you later on, then when, they lie, when they're lying to you again, you can say, well, you lied to me. How can I trust you this time? So it's good to have a, a memory bank of, um, you know, of, of different things that have happened along the journey with heads of footy or CEOs or things like that. But obviously some clubs are better than the others. I, I, whenever, when any, it's a question that people ask me quite often, you know, how do you deal with people lying to you? But the, the example I always go to is the infamous Adelaide training camp, which was terrible for the players um, and assistant coaches didn't like it. And it really, it's cooked the club for the last two years just because it, it, a lot of players lost a lot of trust in the club. But Brett Burton, who was the head of footy at the Adelaide Crows at the time, and I get along with well, and I still get along with well, I called him and I said, this is like 5 p.m. on a Monday, on the couch starts at 8.30. So I'm thinking like, this is a big story if I'm on the couch. Like I can go off the top on this. Like this is going to be awesome. Um, Brett, I've got a big story. And I always try to give it a heads up. I don't want people to be surprised by the story. They might not like the story, but I don't want them to be surprised if I can. So I said, Brett, oh, I've got this story about Adelaide Crows, um, about you guys training camp, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was cult-like. Things happened that was, were regrettable. Do you have anything to offer either either on or off the record? So, you know, off the record, he can say, look, mate, a bit of balance here. Some players liked, some players didn't. We said sorry, da, da, da. Or on the record, you can actually give me a comment. It's up to you. Anyway, he goes, Tom, give me, give me half an hour. I'll give you a buzz back. I said, no worries, Brett. So at about 6 o'clock, he calls me back and he goes, look, Tom, you're going to be, you're going to look like a fool if you go with this story. You're going to be, they look completely stupid. All the players love this camp. It was great for our club, great no for our way. culture. Uh, I, I'm looking out for you, Tom. Don't be, don't be, don't be a fool. You know, don't, 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 don't have, don't have egg on your face. I said, no worries, Brett. Thanks. And then at about eight o'clock, I spoke to enough people to make sure the story was right. And I sent him a text saying, hi, Brett, going with the story. And he never replied to that. We didn't reply to that. We spoke a few days later, but I'm just thinking to myself, in that moment, it was best if he didn't lie. It was best if he said to me, Tom, we got it wrong. Um, we've said sorry to a lot of the players. It's regrettable. Let, let's, I'll give you some comments like, and, and, we'll, and we'll shape the story together. And I would have said, no worries. Yes, give me on the – because that's fine. But in that moment, he's actually cooked the club for the next two years because he's lied about it and it's just blown up. There's other occasions as well, like I call like a club president um, and I said, look, I'm hearing this. And they go, Tom, if you're wrong – I'd tell you. And then they hung up the phone. So like, they're not saying yes, so, but like, they're not saying no. So uh, there's a, you've got to be, the more, probably the bottom line is the more you get to know people, the more you can, you can understand when they're lying. You can understand when they're trying to steer, steer you in the right direction. Often if they don't take the call, it means because they don't want to have to lie to you. So it, it's a tough balance. And it's something that I mean, I've, I've had no mentor. Like I've just learned all this myself. But that's just by calling lots of people all the time. But it's not easy. It's not easy, and I don't like getting lied to. But that, I, that's just the industry. One one last journalism question before we get to the D's. So yep. last year, um, of course, you had a bit of a run in with Jesse Hogan on Twitter. Yeah, uh, yeah. I believe you were called a leech <laughs> uh, by Hogan. Yeah. And I know in your comments subsequent to that, um, you said that you've got a thick skin, um, and you know these kinds of things roll off you. But you know clearly you care about having a moral compass, right? And you yeah. care about ethics and you want to be presented in a certain way. So how do you square those things? Did you ever, do you really not have any reaction when someone calls you something like that? Does it really not affect you at all? No, it doesn't affect me to the point like I'm losing sleep over it. It doesn't make me sad or affect my relationship with my girlfriend or my parents or my work colleagues. Um, the leech comment was, the things, the, the only things that get to you a little bit are the things that you know 
um, you know, your mistake in the first place. So the Canelio story last week, if people are saying like, how can we trust you from now on? You've got that story wrong. I'm like, yeah, you, you actually make a good point. That's actually bang on. But if someone that I've met once that I've never done anything wrong to and that I don't know calls me a leech, I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, it's, it, that is that is water for ducks back. The difficult story with the Jesse Ho, the difficult part of the Jesse Hogan thing was not only was he factually incorrect, like I, and I'll explain it, but um, I was doing, uh, it was during the Cricket World Cup. So I was hosting a, hosting the broadcast in Sydney, which was like a huge career opportunity. I had like Mark Wall sitting there. Like I'd, I'd, I was, I was just loving it that Australia was playing. And I, one lesson I've learned since is never check Twitter while you're on air. You don't know what people are saying. So anyway, I was, I was in the ad break. I'm just checking my phone. I'm like, what is, what is this? Like, why is Jesse Hogan teeing off on me? I've met him once. I actually don't know him. Um, so I was just more like a bit shook. I was like, that, that's bizarre. Anyway, I just continued. And then I, then I finished the broadcast and I got into the Uber to go back to the hotel. And my phone just lit up, like, as you can imagine, like WhatsApp groups, like tweets, Freo supporters getting into me. I'm just, this is, and then it sort of, it made me feel uncomfortable. What made me feel uncomfortable is in some ways, like I became the story. I'd done nothing. Like you called it a run-in, but I, I was just, I was yeah, just a, yeah, I was just a sitting there. duck. Like there, there was yeah, no yeah, yeah. It's a one-way run-in. Yeah. yeah. A one-way run-in. And then I sort of had to make a decision. Well, how do I handle this? Like I can reply to him, reply to him on Twitter. I'm like, there's no need of that. Like I'll be the bigger man here. Everyone knows. Um, I won't say that actually, but like I'll be the, I'll be the bigger man. And, um, and, and in the end, he deleted his tweet. Um, and I'd never heard, and I never heard from him. But in that tweet, I think he said, you know, Tom leaked information from Melbourne Football Club and then was sacked. It's like, well, I was working for Fox Sports. I was doing a podcast for Melbourne Footy Club. As a news breaking journalist, I got a story independent of that about Melbourne Football Club. I reported that story for Fox Sports because that's my job. And then I've got the text message proof. I sent Ryan Larkin, who's the media manager at Melbourne, a message saying, um, this might be a bit difficult now. Like my, my, my loyalty and my allegiance is to my job at Fox. And he goes, yeah, mate, probably fair call. That's it. And that was an amicable party. And Clint Stanaway did the podcast with, um, Katie Price. And then I think, um, uh, Millie Mithin and, and some others have done it as well. So there was no hard feelings. And then two years or two years later, this thing bobs up. And it's just <laughs> weird. But in terms of having a thick skin, you sort of have to have a thick skin. It actually affects my mum more than anything else. Like she just can't read the comments. She's like, how can people be so rude? And I tend to agree. Like, I don't understand how people can be so rude. Before I was even a journalist, I can't imagine getting on my computer or my phone writing some of the things I see people write about Sam McClure or Tom Brown or myself or Mark Robinson or, or anyone. Like it just, the people get emotional and, and they sort of hide behind the facade of the computer, which is disappointing. Um, but I also know that a lot of people, uh, people cop it a lot worse than me. I, I think women cop it way worse. Mm. Um, you see some of the racist comments to some footballers recently have been disgraceful. So uh, I, I don't, I don't let it affect me. But I also tell my mum, just don't read it because it, they're from nobody. So I wouldn't worry about it. But yeah, the leech story was, that was a bizarre story. And still occasionally, I still get a Freo support, supporter calling me a leech. <laughs> so, you know, I don't try not to let it define me as a person. Um, you're going to go through the ups and downs. But I, I'm sort of lucky that I've got people I trust around me and I sort of back myself to be able to have a good moral compass um, and get the stories and do, do it the right way. But yeah, that was a weird, weird time. It's maybe we should reconsider some of the shots we take at Damien Barrett and Robert. No, we take a few uh, on Twitter. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm so I'm I'm a little bit of a Twitter well, troll. No, I'm, it, not. I'm not. I'm not. It's not. on the podcast. It's not anonymous, at least. It's no, sad. no, no. Well, I, I definitely I, put I, my I, name to my insults. Don't worry about that. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's I think there's a I think there's a line though. Like you can criticize someone's story. Like I don't think that's trolling. No. You can criticize 
someone, even someone's journalism, criticize their journalism is fine, but I wouldn't be criticizing um, the way people look or, or the yeah. way people sound. You know, that, I, I think there's, there's sort of, I have a very clear line in my head. And the problem is that people are not, not be, but some people who are very sensitive consider any criticism trolling. And I don't, mm-hmm. I think trolling is about personal issues, you know, I, you know, um, racist or sexual or mm. religion mm. Or, or, or deeply personal issues, I, I just wouldn't touch. But some people take it there. And I don't block anyone on Twitter because when you block someone, it's, it's like they've won. But I certainly mute quite a lot of people. I just mute them because I, I don't want to see it in the future. Yeah. I would never block anyone. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And it is like, I don't know, you don't want to remove healthy, robust debate from Twitter, no. right? Like you don't want to remove Absolutely. that because that's why people like engaging with journalists. That's why people, you know, that's like people, yeah. why people like being on Twitter, right? Yeah, that's right. And if I get a tweet criticizing an article or, you know, um, being negative towards something I've written or something I've done, sometimes I reply, but I sort of try to rise above. I'm just like a nice blunt comment with like a thumbs up just to make it clear that like it's fine, it's all good, but maybe the person tweeting me, probably the underlying message from me is that person's probably a little bit too emotional about their footy club, which I can understand it's an emotional business, but it's... Uh, Twitter can be a cesspool, and I've, I've got to make. I often make sure that I'm, I keep it very professional there as much as I can. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get stuck into the D's. All right. So, number one question for you, Tom. Yeah. He's been dubbed the best player in the AFL by Shane Crawford, and he's apparently he's gone past Dusty. Is Christian Petrarca yeah. the most exciting Melbourne player in the past twenty years? Oh. <laughs> I thought you could just ask me if he's the best player in the AFL. Most exciting pl- player in the last twenty years. Um, that is a great question. Jeff Farmer was probably more late nineties, so I'm going to say yes. Um, I reckon he is. We spoke about it on first crack with David King and um and uh, Nick Del Santo last night. I reckon that Christian Petrarca is Dusty Martin circa 2015. So about six years into his career, strong, coming into his own, um, like beautiful. He's become a beautiful flat kick as well. Yeah. Um. But he doesn't really have much to show for it. Like he hasn't won best in Ferris. He hasn't won a flag. He hasn't really been close to winning a brown low, which is exactly what Dusty was in 2015. So it'd be awesome if he could sort of continue on that trajectory. But yeah, I'm a huge Petrarca man. And I saw him, I don't, I'm sure you guys would have watched the game. He played a preseason game this year. Yeah. Um, against Frio or Adelaide. And he was like on fire. Like this Unbelievable. Guy, I know his brother quite well. Um, Julian's a player manager and uh, at Hemisphere. And Julian just said to me, I think in January, mate, Christian's going to have an unbelievable season this year. <laughs> so I've just sort of watched him closely since then. What, what, what a bargain at pick two as well. I mean, St. Kilda, I was working at St Kilda at the time. Oh, wow. They were, they were adamant. It was behind closed doors. You know, it was Petrarca the whole year. We're going to take Petrarca. And then what became apparent in, in the Saints' mind was that Nick Rewalt probably had two or three more years and they needed someone to replace Rewalt. So instead of going for best available, they mm. went more for the horses for courses, which was McCartan, which um, they thought would be able to replace Nick Rewalt, which he may have, except he's had concussion issues, so you don't know. But Petrarca was clearly, in my in my view at the time, the best player in the draft and what I've what I saw. And so when he slipped through to number two, I just thought that is a great get. And he sort of teased us, hasn't he? But yeah. he's done some awesome footy now. And if I'm going to line every player up in the AFL, uh, like you know, primary school recess style. I'm probably picking Lockie Neal first and Christian Petrarca second to play a game this week. I think he's in some serious form. He is smashing it. And this is very much the Christian Petrarca fan club over here. Good. Kieran's been like... Can I be part of it? 
Yeah, no, you're like the number one ticket holder. No, no, Kira might be actually. So Nita's been a bit of a hater over the years. I've not been a hater. I've been a frustrated Melbourne supporter. Last year, she was suggesting maybe we should consider trading. You know what? No, I can tell you when I said this. Do you remember in the Geelong game when we were just, this was round two last year, and he just looked so low on confidence and devastated. And I said, look, will he ever reach his potential? But I'm ex- in the same way that people thought that Dustin Martin should go to GWS. Like- I know. I would say um, you are not a football fan if you haven't considered trading someone who's a little <laughs> bit down on confidence and still has some currency in your time. Like, like, it is normal to look at players and go, they're not quite at their best for us. They've got some currency elsewhere. How, what can we get for them? Like, that is the... You know, I don't know if you grew, grew up playing like FIFA or football manager or like being list managers, for, but like the trade period is hectic because everyone wants to be a list manager. So I've, I look at players on the list, I'm like, even like a few years ago, I'm like, Jesus, can you trade Max Gorn? And like that's <laughs> that now. No, it's like, like heresy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is not illegal to have those thoughts, Nina. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Kieran yeah. told me I needed to do a public apology to Christian Petrarca. No, <laughs> I, um, no I, I love him now. I'm an extraordinarily big fan. Uh, let me ask you, though, about Petrarca's partner in crime, Angus Brayshaw. So he's someone that's in a bit of an interesting spot, I think, because, you know, he's getting plenty of time in the centre bounces. We, in a very nerdy move, went through and watched every centre bounce last week to see. And he's he's actually getting 50% of the centre bounces. He gets a lot of time. He's trying to work. replace David King is really, exactly, that's yeah. sort of, he's trying to bring this to Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Overseas ambassador, you could do that. Champion. <laughs> I don't think I'm as, as abrasive, but... Um, in, t- in terms of, of Brayshaw, does he have an issue with Simon Goodwin? Is there something going on, do you think, that means that he's he's not quite living up to his potential? Because a couple of years ago, it really looked like he was the, the guy. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't, not that I know of. Um, I think if he had an issue with Simon Goodwin, he probably still wouldn't be there because they would have found a way to trade him. So the thing about Angus Brayshaw is he's not necessarily quick. Um, he's not necessarily a booming kick, although he's good on both sides of his body. He's had issues with concussion, which I reckon put him back probably a couple of years in his career. But I agree that he hasn't quite, to this point, achieved what he should have achieved as a footballer. But I also look at players around the AFL, and Lockie Neal's a good example for Brisbane, who, as I said, is probably the best player in the comp right now. Like, progression is very rarely linear. You know, for every Joel Selwood or Chris Judd, or Matt Rowe that comes in that seems to just dominate early and then dominates for the rest of their careers until they retire. There are like hundreds and hundreds of Angus Brayshaws that play well, then play pretty poorly, then have mm. a good year, then have a bad year, and they have a little spot in their mid to late 20s where they have three or four years that are really good. So I wouldn't be losing hope just yet, but uh, I certainly think he's had sort of a rocky road. We need him We need him at, our, at his best because he's so clean and he's so good on both sides of his body but he's just not quite there yet. I'm still holding out hope though. And I reckon by the time he reaches sort of 25, 26, he'll be a gun. I'm not sure he's going to be like a Brownlow star or one of the best players in the comp, but he could be a pretty valuable player. But like all these players as well, and he good players around them, you know, like how how much better, um, how much better was like, I don't know, Charlie Spargo in late 2018 Mm. when the team was playing well. Then the team's playing poorly last year and Charlie Spargo plays poorly. So You know, you look at players at, at, at clubs, um, something of a like a like a West Coast. In I'll never. This is always the example, right? So Stephen Armstrong goes from Melbourne to West Coast, yeah. and at Melbourne, like right. he's not much. He walks into West Coast, and he's a good player because he's getting he's they're hitting him on the tit, and he's got space, and he's got the sixth worst defender. So I think a lot <laughs> of it comes down to, to to the way the other players are around you. And I'm certain that if Oliver plays 
better. And if Viney continues to play better, and if Petrarca becomes one of the best players in the comp, that Brayshaw will get better with them. But it just doesn't happen at the same time. Yeah, I agree with that. And look, Petrarca wasn't great in 2018, and Brayshaw and Oliver were doing most of the heavy lifting in the mm. midfield and, and around the ground. So I don't know. I think that maybe you can afford to have a you know one of them to be done. That's true. Um, yeah, I've still yeah. got I've still got faith. But yeah, yeah you're right. It, he he's been disappointing on the whole the last couple of years. So should Goodwin be under pressure if the D's scrape into the just scrape into the eight this year? Like, what do you think is the benchmark for success this year? Given well, what last year? First of all, define define pressure for me. Give me give me yeah. your, give me your give me your legal definition. Of <laughs> well, I mean, I think the truth is, given the club's financial position and given he's got two more years. He's not under any meaningful pressure, but nevertheless, yeah. two weeks ago, everyone was going crazy about Goodwin, even though he's not going to get sacked. Yeah. So it's really, it's media pressure and the kind of pressure that I guess could, in some situations, lead a coach to themselves leave early. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think in any normal year without COVID, um, if Simon Goodwin led Melbourne to a 14th place finish this year, he would be sacked. Um, and the club would find a way to to fund that because the soft cap wouldn't have changed, and you know the debt demolition would would have allowed Melbourne to make that call, and it would have been cheaper to sack him than it would have been to um, to keep him on. But you're right; he's not going to be sacked this year, even if we do finish 14th now, because of the financial perils of being in a, in a coronavirus world. And it's just in, and the soft cap is a really interesting thing because you know, by definition, the soft cap you can you can uh, pay more than that. You pay 70% tax on top of the soft cap for the football department, but only the rich clubs can afford it. So West Coast can do it, but Melbourne can't afford to do that. Um, and to answer your question though, I think if Melbourne just scrape into the eight, I think that's okay. Because I think you can win a final, win a second final and then and go next year. I think if Melbourne missed the eight, then it's a disappointing year. Like, you know, there's like an over and above. I don't know if you guys are punters at all, but it's like, you know, you got like a, I think Melbourne's over and under is um is eight point five. You know, if they finish eighth or higher, then it's then it's probably a tick, especially if then they're going to win a final. If they finish lower than ninth, then it's 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 a fail. And what's become apparent, and it, I'm not the first one to say this, it's a lot easier to drop from a prelim final to seventeenth than it is to climb from seventeenth to a prelim final. So that might not be a one year process to climb back up the ladder. It might be a two or three year process. And I'm willing to sit and watch that because I think there's young enough players in the team that can take it forward. It's not like, like we're in a better position than Hawthorne. We're younger than Hawthorne, for example. Um, GWS have more talent, but they've gone to the well so many times. It's hard for them, hard to see them continually going back and not getting there. So I still think Melbourne can compete next year. I think they can compete the year. I think we can compete the year after. Um, but I, I would say that if we play finals, then it's been a tick. If we don't, then it's been a cross. And I think at the moment, that's, that's sort of the line. So do you, do you agree? Do you guys agree? I definitely. I mean, I look. Mean, last week, Nita called to be sacked. So. Yeah, well, because yeah, yeah, I, I was saying the same thing. They were a disaster. They were a disaster. I'm sorry, but you can't be just as like a basic, I don't know, like how you're doing at your job, like metric. You can't make the same mistake every week for 18 months and then expect to keep your job. I'd be sacked in a heartbeat. Uh, like, you're preaching the converted sister. That is bang on. It's so like, frustrating to watch when we're not, when we're not good. You can't have that many inside right. 50s and then have absolutely no forward mid connection and then repeatedly say, well, I know what the problem is and then have absolutely no method of fixing it. I don't know. That's uh, just my view. It's all about what's the benchmark, right? Is the benchmark fourth or is the benchmark 17th? And that's what's so hard to tell with Melbourne. And look, and look, I think it's somewhere in between, I reckon. 
Yeah, but my view on this is they had no right to be as bad as they were. I'm sorry, they've had so many first-round draft picks. Like, the entire team of first-round draft picks, basically. The entire midfield of first-round draft picks. Like, Lever is a first-round draft pick. Melksham is a first-round draft pick. Like, literally, everyone, Hibbard's an All-Australian. Like, it's just littered with first-round draft picks. Even Harley Bennell. Even Har- yeah, Harley Bennell's an all-first-round draft pick. Like, it's just, they're everywhere. So there's no reason, they've just had so many top, picks and top-end talent, they can't be as bad as 17. Like that's... 17th was terrible. But, but right. most 17th place teams would be getting done by 80, 90, 100 points right. you know, on a semi-consistent basis. And we just never did. Every week, it seemed like last year, we lost by 35 points. And we're never really in the game. We never really looked like we we're going to win. And we lost the game and we ended up finishing 17th. And it was embarrassing. But I, my view at the end of last year, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think, was that we actually slight, slightly overachieved to make a prelim final. I think we got a pretty ordinary Geelong team and an ageing Hawthorne team that was on the way out. And the, the bigger sample size was the home and away season where we performed well without being great. And only we really snuck into finals a couple of weeks before finals. So yes, it was a good achievement, but I think a prelim final it was probably a slight false economy. Equally, I think finishing 17th, for the reasons I just said, is, was also a slight false economy because we weren't getting spanked every week. Mm. Look at 17th team this, this year, whether it's North Melbourne or Adelaide, like they're getting belted, absolutely mm. belted. So uh, you know, we would have to be the best 17th place team of all time. And in reality, I think if you just split the two, we were sort of across the two years, maybe like the eighth or ninth best team. And I think that's about right. And that's about where we are now, I think. The challenge is taking the next step and becoming a top four team. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my big question to you both is, do you think the D's have built a list that's capable of contending if they make the right tactical shifts? Or is, is there just some, are there some fundamental holes in the lift, in the list that need to be corrected? Uh, well, Nita, I think there's one hole and then I think we need a, a key forward. Uh, I think we need a goal kicker that's going to kick us 60 goals. And I don't think we have that. I know Tom McDonald's done reasonably in the past, but he did that with Jesse Hogan alongside him. Um, I think Sam Wiedemann could be a good player, but he's not ready there yet. So yes, Sam Wiedemann could be a 60-goal kicker in two or three years' time, but I don't think he's a 60-goal kicker yet. So I don't see how we're going to win a flag this year if we don't have a goal kicker that's going to kick 60 goals. Um, I don't know who we're going to get. I want Tom Hawkins from Geelong. I think there's a chance that Geelong might have to rebuild. Um, I think Hawkins has still got something to offer. And I I know it's not part of the the age profile we want, but if we want to win a flag next year, Mm. I think Hawkins would be a great pickup if he could leave Geelong amicably and if there could be sort of a mutual understanding between the club and the player. So I'm, I'm really a big fan of that or something else like that. You know, we've gone and got Steve May. We, we went and got Jake Lever. So we've got defenders. We've got hard midfielders. We've now got wing, a winger like Ed Langdon who can run, which is great. Um, but we just don't, that forward mid connection in my view is partially because a lot of the midfielders don't kick the ball that well, but also partially because our forward line in terms of key forwards, key marking forwards, isn't that good either. So I think if we can just fix that up somehow at the end of the year, I think we will then have a list that can compete for a flag. Well, Tom Hawkins has destroyed us so many times over so many years, so it'd be nice to finally have him on the team. But no, I agree. I mean, look, I I think the thing that frustrated me about the May trade was it just, for me, it just reeked of kind of a bit of incompetence. Like like you you lose a 50-goal forward, where did they think, like you can't just replace that. Like where did they think it was going to come from, you know? Like you don't turn someone like Sam Wiedemann, who obviously had a great final series, but you don't turn that into a 50-goal forward. Like that's... That's hard work. And so the idea that you just go and, you know, assume that things will be fine, then go out and get Stephen May and not even really, cons- 
I don't know if they really considered picking up Ben King. You can probably tell us that, Tom. But for me, yeah. that just reeked of like poor foresight, if you get me, and like kind of. Yeah, I, I thought I think they thought um, Ben King was going to go earlier. I didn't think they thought Ben. I didn't think they. I know they thought Ben King wouldn't be there at pick six, so that that wasn't really on their agenda. And the fact that he slipped to pick six was great for um, great for the Suns, the Suns or Saints. Yeah, Suns because Max went to the Saints. Um, but. There was also a belief at the time that Jesse Hogan was going to go home the next the year after. So mm. they may as well, while Steve May's available then, they may as well get something for him then. Like, I would argue, like, you are in the premiership window. I know he was injured at the time, and I know he didn't play much last year, if at all. But, like, you are in the window. You've made a prelim final in 2018. You just deal with Hogan if he wants to leave at the end of 2019. And there will be players available. Like, there are every year. And I would have kept him on the list and tried to win a flag in 2019. Mm. Now, it wasn't the difference between winning a flag and not clearly, but I, I don't like the whole idea of, oh, he's going to go next year, so let's get something for him now. It's like, mm-hmm. you can get something for him next year as well. Like, mm-hmm. Hogan would have been worth a fair bit the next year. So, I don't know. I think May's a good player. I think Jake Lever's a good player. Um, I think Ben King would have been the best result, but I can see I can see what they were trying to do, and it just didn't quite work out. I, I personally agree with David King's analysis on this, to be honest. Like, I don't really What's know what he said. Sorry? What's, what's David King said? Well, because he basically said that, like, he doesn't know of any team in the world that has spent so many high draft picks, like so many first-round draft picks on their defense. You know, like you spent, you use those high draft picks on your playmakers or your key forwards. You don't spend them on sort of people who need to be dour defenders, if you get me. And so, look, I mean, I don't dislike. Right. You can win a flag with press June coma and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> You don't like look. I, I'm fine with leaving remain the team, but we've just paid a lot for that. I, yeah. I don't, and and I also think that there's and as Hawthorne is showing now, giving up a first round draft pick, draft pick is kind of a big deal. It's not like like there's this sort of view of oh their draft picks they're all speculative. It could be a hit or a miss, but it could be a hit. And at some point, I kind of think you got to like just have a little bit more like respect, I suppose, for what some how good some of these kids who are coming through now are. Like, I mean, if you look at um, the Sam Walsh draft, like literally everyone in that top 10 is awesome. Like awesome. They're ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. They are all so good. Like, you know, Bailey Smith is number seven and you could happily have him as your first round draft, as your top first pick. So, cause he's incredible. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just think that you, it's kind of not giving as much respect to the draft in some ways. And I don't know. Yeah, I think the, I think Melbourne felt, and I agree with you. I think Melbourne felt like they were they'd gone to the draft so many years in a row, and they had all these high draft picks that then they could sort of top up with experienced players elsewhere. But it's about the positions of those experienced players. Um, I don't mind. I actually don't mind not going to the draft so long as you can fill holes on your list to make yourself a premiership contender right there and then. But we filled the backline hole. That's fine. Mm. We've got midfielders, but we still got forwards that are missing. So what's the point mm. of getting Steve May and Lever and missing out on draft picks if you don't mm. think you're going to get forwards? I would have preferred to put Tom McDonald back in defence um, and not get one of Lever or May, and then go for a key go for a key forward. But also, key forwards don't grow on trees. Like they're hard to get. So you know, I know we've gone and got Luke Jackson with a high draft pick. Um, remains to be seen how good he's going to be. I think he's going to be a good player, but he's still three, four, five, six years away from being at his mm. best. So it's a long haul. So, Tom, do you have any interest? Have you heard any interesting whispers about Melbourne targeting certain players? <laughs> Basically, compromise your full time job where you break stories and <laughs> give us an exclusive on the Deal Podcast, please. Well, what's, what sort of uh, whispers are you talking about? <laughs> Maybe uh, a Jeremy Cameron for no obvious reason, desperately. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or... Well, I mean, I knew that Ed Langdon, no, this is a retrospective whisper, doesn't count. I knew that Ed Langdon <laughs> Melbourne um, halfway through last year. Um, no, I, I think Melbourne's um, 
in a relatively good position salary cap wise. Um, they, the, the, the challenge is going to be a Jeremy Cameron or I don't know what other key forward you can even go and get. I'm trying to pick you in the league. I mean, Joe Danaher has been mentioned as well, but he hasn't played. Like, what, what's Joe Danaher worth? That's a really hard mm. question. I mean, the Sydney Swans and Essendon couldn't agree on it last year when he had played a few games. How are you going to agree what Joe Danaher is worth now? Um, but no, in, all, in short answer, I've got no whispers. If I had any whispers, I'd, you'd see them online, but I've got nothing. <laughs> um, it's very early. I mean, normally this time of the year, what is it, July 20, normally by July, you know, this trade chat, going hard but because there's been a contract freeze and no players have been able to sign contracts there's going to be a big backlog towards the back end of the year so everyone's sort of just sitting and waiting at the moment for the contracts to open and then once they do open then managers and clubs will start talking then stories will leak out then you know a story will come out that melbourne's chasing this player and then melbourne will deny it but everyone in the media will know it's true but they have to lie because that's what they need to do to um you know just show respect to the player and show respect to the manager and the other club so it just it's like a roundabout. It's unbelievable. The amount of times a club, uh, a story comes out from any journalist and says, this club is chasing this player. And the club goes, that is not true. And all the supporters go, oh, okay, we'll believe the club. And then that player goes to that club at the end of the year. <laughs> and it's just, it's just like, well, what, what did you say in July? And no one, no one goes back and, and listens to that. So probably the lesson is, if ever a journalist says that a club is chasing a player, I reckon you can, you can believe it. 19, 19 times out of 20 because that's not coming from nowhere. Got it. Hmm. All right. Probably, probably, sorry, probably depending on who the journalist is more so than others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so let's get to the game preview. So let's talk about Brisbane next week. Tom, what are your thoughts yeah. on, on, that mat, on that matchup? Well, I think Brisbane, are, if they're not the best team, they're probably the second best team in the comp right now. Where is the game? Um, Metricon. Is it, is it Metricon, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it, it, this takes me back to... Uh, my childhood when we used to play home games in Queensland against Brisbane. Mm. Do you remember that? And I think we That's beat grim. Brisbane once. When the, we yeah. beat them when they were in a like their premiership window. Um, yeah, yeah. When Chris Lamb, Chris Lamb played on Alistair Lynch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Chris Lamb. That is great. Oh, that is awesome. That's nostalgic bliss. That is that is what, <laughs> what I'm here for. Oh, that, that is so good. I remember what, it was a sunny day uh, at the game. Anyway, so um, Metricon <laughs> Stadium. Look, I think Brisbane are clearly favourites, but we've got a bit of we've got a bit of a bit of momentum now, which is good. Um, I've got to be honest. When I do my tips, I tip with my head and not my heart, mm. um, and that's how I've always tipped. And I tipped Hawthorne yesterday, which makes me feel sick. Doesn't mean I'm not supporting Melbourne, but I just thought Hawthorne would win. I thought that Clark I would get him to rebound. As it turned out, Melbourne learnt a bit from the Gold Coast game and got even better. So we're building. I still think Brisbane will win. But I don't think losing to Brisbane is a disgrace either. Uh, yeah. I think if we can if we can match it with them, I mean the, the thing is they're so exciting. They've got such great ball movement. It's going to be very hard to stifle that. Um, equally, um, I'm interested to see what we do with our team. I, I'm intrigued about Nathan Jones. Um, mm, we were talking about that. Of, yeah. yeah. Who do you think well, would go out? So I don't know who we're going to go out for him, but I, I just think I just think he should be playing. Um, but I, it's sort of easy to say that when he's not. In the te- you know, it's easy to say that when you haven't looked forensically who should drop out for him. But I, I just think you've got to say, hey, Nathan, like, we'll give you a month. Um, you're a good kick of the footy. You can play in the wing. You can play half back. You can play half forward. You know, you are like, if you're going to preach, if you're going to, as a club and an organization, if you're going to preach these values like loyalty and respect and integrity and all these sort of things, you sort of got to live it as well. And I'm not saying we should just hand Nathan Jones a game for the sake of it. But I think at the moment, the, the, the position our team is in, you can actually get him in. And then when you get him in, and if he's not up to it, 
then you move him on. But we actually don't know at the moment. Mm. I, I, he played earlier on the year and he shouldn't have played. He was 70% fit. I know that he was 70% fit. He, was, he shouldn't have played. He was warned not to play. He thought he'd push through it and he played poorly because he wasn't fit. He would have been better off not playing at all. I think he had a calf injury or something like that. So I'm intrigued as to what they do with Nathan Jones. But I would be getting him in now and seeing if he's any good. If he's good, you keep him in. If he's not, you say, look, this is the end of the line. That's fine. Mm. But I, I think it's got to be now rather than when it's crunch time in the last four or five rounds of the year. And big question for you, does Tom McDonald get back in if he's fit? Um, with his eye, he's got an eye injury, doesn't he? Mm. Um, yeah, he probably does come back in, but oh, like, I really like Wiedemann up forward and I, yeah. like, Luke, I like the idea of Luke Jackson as well. Um, Tom, Tom McDonald, like... I don't know. I don't know why they tried to create him in, into a, a constant forward. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a swingman. Tom McDonald can play both ends. You need you just plug a hole in defence if you need him. If you plug a hole, like if you want Jake Lever to be more of your third or fourth tall, then you put Tom McDonald back. If the opposition has a has a um, has a less imposing forward line, then you can put Tom McDonald forward and Jake Lever can play on um, the opposition key forward or second key forward. So, I, I would err on Tom McDonald coming back in, but I'm e- equally I'm not completely against leaving him out and sticking with a winning formula from that perspective. What do you guys think? Oh, it's, it's tough. I mean, you don't really want to drop Jackson after that game. He was very solid, but I don't know who else you would drop. I mean, you could in theory drop Oscar and make Tom McDonald yep. Oscar's role, but Oscar's been pretty solid as well. And so I don't know if you really want to mess with the defense that's now. Yeah, I know. I mean, if you, yeah, if, I agree with that. If, if you look at the Luke Beveridge model at Western Bulldogs, Excuse my language. Like he doesn't give a shit. Like he just drops, he he just he just drops players all over the place. They they win. They make six changes. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. care. Squad mentality. Yeah. You know, um, the way he sees it is like a game of ice hockey where players are coming off all the time. Like it's just gone bad. And he does that week to week. He just goes in and out. It doesn't matter. You know, squad mentality. And if you can sort of get into that mold, it's good. But it's sort of hard to do mid season. You sort of got to put it on the line at the start of the season. Hey guys. I'm like from a coaching perspective, from like a, uh, a team selection perspective, if you're out of form or if there's um, no room for you in the team, you're out. It doesn't matter what the result was and we'll make changes based on that. Whereas it looks like if Melbourne make five or six changes after a loss, Simon Goodwin's panicking or he's wielding mm. the axe. Or it looks like um, he's not showing confidence in the players he's got. Whereas uh, somehow the Western Bulldogs have found a way to do that. But every player understands it's like, well, I'll just play next week or I'll play the week after and I'll just play my role when I play. Really hard position to get to. They want a flag in 2016 doing that. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't mind it as a philosophy, especially in a condensed season when you've got four and a half day breaks. And we had this discussion last night again on, on Fox. Do you, like, what's your philosophy with, um, with, with resting players? Like, do you, do you rest six or seven in one game that you know you're going to win, let's say against the Crows or North Melbourne? And that's like a bye week for your best players. Or do you rest three or four players every week and therefore never play with your best team? but you don't really compromise any games significantly. Mm. You're still playing with a relatively strong team. And these, this, these are the things that clubs are having to deal with and Melbourne's having to deal with. So maybe you say to Tom McDonald, you're not going to play this week, but we're going to rest um, uh, Luke Jackson next week because he's mm. tied. Or we're going to rest Oscar because he's tied. Or Stephen May needs to rest and he'll come back in the next week and just sort of mm. rotate them through. And you really only play your best team when it's crunch time closer to finals. Uh, that, that could easily happen given um, teams are likely to play I think Melbourne's likely to play eight games in 40 days or something like that. So that's mm. a lot of footy. 
Yeah, it is. I don't know. I'm of the view, though, With I think with this team, they were playing so well in 2018 when they were all supremely confident. Like Melksham was, Melksham's confidence was through the roof. Tom yeah. McDonald's confidence was through the roof. So I think that constantly making changes just disrupts that confidence because it's just constant nervousness and unsettlement, don't you think? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. It, it, just go, it just goes back to the underlying message that you give as a, yeah. as a match committee. And if it's like the Western Bulldogs and you say it's not about confidence, it's about playing your role, then you go, okay, fair enough. But if if you're going to deflate people, then it's probably not worth making changes for the sake of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for uh, being so generous with your time. Uh, No worries at all. It's been a pleasure. Can I ask a question to you guys? Yeah. Of course. First time. Who who is your favourite player of all time, Melbourne player? Oh, that's a great question. I know the answer to yours. Uh, this would be Travis Johnston. Oh, you do know the answer to mine. I do know the answer to yours. Uh, why, why Travis Johnston? So my perennial issue is I think that Melbourne does not care enough about kicking as a value. <laughs> yep. And Travis Johnston used to cop so much crap because he was a bad defensive player. And yes, he was a bad defensive player. But that guy could kick better than nearly yeah. anyone I've ever seen. And I just, I don't know. I just think he didn't get appreciated. I mean, I think he was, he was maybe top five of the Brownlow one year, but I think with the Melbourne supporters, I don't think he was loved in the way that I love him. Actually, no, that's not true. And you'll love this, Tom. Kieran's favourite player is actually Rowan Bale to the point where, and this is quite amusing, so Kieran was starstruck because we went up to Frio. We went up to Darwin one year. It would have been in 2014. We got thumped by Frio. Stupid Hayden Ballantyne, who was like my perennially, the guy I hated the most. Um, he was just running a mark and he destroyed us. And anyway, and I remember after the game, we met Rowan Bale and Kieran was like actually like quite starstruck by the whole thing. It was quite, it was quite overwhelming for him. Yeah, and we actually have a, an award on the podcast, which is the uh, Rowan Bale Award for most underrated performance. Oh, yeah. So, Tom, who would you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who would you give the Rowan Bale Award to this week? Yeah, question without notice. Uh, from the weekend, underrated performance. Um, okay, I'll give it to Jack Viney. Because I think in any other game, he would be best afield. But he had Gorn and Petrarca that were weirdly slightly better than him. So he's probably going to end up with one vote. Whereas I think he was unbelievable. And some of his kicking was way better. He he slotted a goal. Like he's actually kicking the ball a lot better. So three weeks ago, I was thinking that Jack Viney should be a back pocket. And I've completely switched. And I'm happy with him in the midfield now. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing how you can change like that. Just on Travis Johnson, do you remember the the game at the end of Turson and... uh, Oh, the end of 2006 or the end of 2007 against Carlton, the Cruiser Cup. So whoever oh, lost yeah. is get Matthew Cruiser. And neither team wanted to win, clearly. So Travis Johnson and Heath Scotland played on each other, played <laughs> on each other, and each had about 43 touches. And I just remember watching Travis Johnson just wheel around and do everything he wanted. We won the game, yeah. but we didn't want to win the game. And that's my enduring memory of Travis Johnson. I was a big Travis Johnson man as well. I, like I'm willing to cop a couple of players in each team that have terrible defensive pressure that can kick it. Like you can probably have two. And I'm happy if Ed Langdon doesn't defend. Just just, kick, <laughs> just run and kick, you know, just do that job. Um, I think the, the best teams cover for those players really well. I mean, Dusty Martin, Richmond covers for Dusty Martin beautifully. He never defends at all. Yeah. So he can afford two. And Travis Johnson was one of them for sure. Mm-hmm. What about yours, Nita? Mine is very, very simple and very basic. Max Gorn. I wanted him to um, basically, at one point when Kieran proposed, because, oh, you will actually love this story. So Kieran proposed to me through a podcast. Um, so he made, made a podcast about our relationship. Um, and then he got Cam Pedersen, of all people, to be like a guest on the podcast. One of my favourites. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one of Kieran's yeah, favourites. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but anyway, at one point I remember saying to Kieran, because we had this very traditional Hindu ceremony, and I said, would it be weird if we reached out to Melbourne and said, look, do you think Max Gorn would be interested in playing a Hindu celebrant at a, um, at a wedding? And we didn't end up doing it because I think my parents might have gone insane because they're kind of religious. Um, <laughs> But honestly, I was very close to doing it because I just love him. I, I just, I love everything he's done for the club. He's a three-time All-Australian for a reason. He's an absolute character. He's hilarious. He doesn't talk. He doesn't say boring, generic things in the media. And yeah, he's just yeah. a superstar. It's good. It's a very basic pick. It's, it's very like basic. I know. I'm not as, I'm, I, but look. Yeah. It's like not as basic. And, and you, like, he's probably our most important player. Along 100%. With and he's also you bang on. How much more likable the players, or anyone in the anyone in the foot industry, who actually speak their mind and say things that that they think, you know, that actually comes to them, you know, um, in a way that's not generic. It, it's it's awesome. I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big Max Gorman man as well. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great note to end on. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom, for your Thanks time. Thanks so much, Tom. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Go D's. Go D's. Go D's. <laughs>